midwife calling. Well, hello and welcome to Poplar Opinion, a Call the Midwife podcast. We are talking about every episode of Call the Midwife one by one without spoilers. I'm Jan Moffat. And I'm Dr. Paul Moffat, not that kind of doctor. And this week we are talking about the fifth episode of season five of Call the Midwife. This episode was directed by Lisa Clark and written by Harriet Warner. This is Lisa Clark's first episode of Call the Midwife, but Harriet Warner has written many an episode. Yeah, that's the name I recognize. Um, like the most recently the second episode of this season which is the one where sister evangelina pushed the breast is best too hard and then left nanatis to go get right with god so yeah harriet warner just written tons yeah do you want to take us away on this episode jan absolutely so we begin with our mature jenny narration about moving into a time of science data and percentages we see a couple, the dollies, at home, with him measuring and weighing incense. Trixie leads keep fit, with Violet struggling with the exercises. Patrick and Sheila talk about chest diseases and lung cancer, while Timothy brings up their smoking. Mrs. Roseanne Dolly is examined by Sister Mary Cynthia, who offers her a pamphlet to ease her fears about illnesses babies can get. Later, when Fred and Violet exercise together, Violet injures her back, leading to her staying in bed for several days, Fred giving her a bell to ring. In Roseanne's home, she chats with the housekeeper, Mrs. Dash, and her husband, Dennis, who is quite older than her. He is gentle and talks of feeling blessed. Later, she goes into labor with no one in the house. She calls Donatus, and Phyllis goes to help, but is delayed due to her car not starting. Delia is tasked with answering the phone. As Phyllis struggles to ride a bike, Delia talks to Roseanne through her labor and delivery over the phone before Phyllis can arrive. Delia is toasted at lunch for her excellence in helping, especially since she's not in midwifery, and Sister Monica Joan makes a joke about her working in male surgery. So, where would you like to start? <laughs> like, we have um, the three plots through the whole... Oh, okay, I guess four. The th- Four plots through the whole episode are Timothy and smoking, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the dollies, Fred, and Violet, Violet. and another plot we haven't gotten quite to yet. And another plot we haven't really gotten to. It's pretty small. Um, Yeah, let's talk about uh, Fred and Violet to start with. Uh, It's nice to see Violet back again. We kind of, they got married and we haven't really had a plot around them quite yet no so it's nice to see their their relationship again and uh it's just them being basically them being cute violet being injured and fred doing his best to help her with giving her a little bell yeah there's gonna be more to this story but right now the like (laughs) thing uh, in this section with Fred and Violet is just when Dr. Turner's like, she needs a door, and Fred is so flustered and <laughs> incompetent. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. With I a mean, knob or without? And <laughs> we have, it is, uh, um, flagging things for the rest of the episode, mm-hmm. but the, like, despite being a doorman, Fred reads in this first section as like, well, uh, despite, doorman, despite being a handyman. Yeah. 
Fred reads in this first section as being like well intentioned but useless. Yeah, I'm exactly. Like, bring me a door. I don't know why. Why can't you just give her pills? It's to lie on. Oh, with a handle or without? It's to lie on. And he oh. takes a door off of the hinges in his own home when like. Fred, you're the master of scavenging. You go out in the street and find a door in, like, a scavenge pile, I betcha. Like, he loves her. He's just thrown off by this whole situation is part is what it is because of his love for her, which is very Fred. Yeah, I mean, it, not to, like, preempt too much, but just, like, this is setting up for us that Fred is well-intentioned, but well-intentioned does not mean competent. Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of well-intentioned, um, Timothy brings yes. up to Patrick and Sheila that, like, in The Lancet, which you've heard mentioned before, which is a medical journal, uh, you know, they're talking about links between lung cancer and smoking, and Patrick just kind of waves it off, and we can see the wheels turning in little Timothy's head. <laughs> Not so little anymore. Yeah, he... we. We have long seen Timothy with a medical interest and reading The Lancet, uh, which is very precocious of him to be reading the medical journal that his father reads. And they're like, don't you read The Lancet? We know that this is... Uh, but did you catch what he's reading in this first scene? <laughs> he's reading Freud. He's reading Freud, which is also some extremely subtle... Uh, queuing up for mm-hmm. for him for the rest of the episode. So he starts off the episode reading Freud. Mm-hmm. He's going to be psychologically manipulative yeah. this episode. Which uh, they say later in the episode his age is 14, and as parents of a 14-year-old, this is very on-brand in a lot of ways for a precocious 14-year-old to read to something like this and employ it to yeah. manipulate their parents. You're right. Our, our kid wouldn't read Freud, but would read something. And yep. would definitely manipulate her parents. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know what else, in terms of that plot, like most of this section is yeah. focused on uh, the dollies. Mm-hmm. So Roseanne, Dolly is the main character of this episode, basically. She's our, yeah. She's our mom, and... Um, we spend so much of this episode wondering what is up with her. We do. And like having watched it twice now and having seen it a long, a long time ago when I first watched it, there's just like, until you find out exactly what's up with her, there's just no hint of like what something is up. And we see... Her um, illiteracy a little bit that she's given this pamphlet and later at home she's struggling to read it. Yeah. But they're fancy. Yeah. In a different way than we've seen many of the East End people before. It is like, as you say, this isn't the first time I've seen this episode, but like watching it as if it's the first time, it's like, what is going on? I like, it's hard to parse at first what is going on. Like, mm-hmm. is that even her... She, her husband's quite a bit older than she is, and it's not immediately obvious that he is her husband because she's in this fancy house. She's like going to appointments alone. 
there's Mrs. Dash cleans house. He's like, you spend too much time with me and Mrs. Dash, old people. Mm-hmm. And like, is he... But then their relationship is not, is like, clearly romantic in how they look at each other and interact with each other. And like, she's so anxious. She looks fancy. She's dressed and her hair is done up fancy. And even his, like, uh, even his job... It Mm -hmm. starts off with, like, the science in the future, and he's measuring things, and it's like, is this a, is he a pharmacist? Is he a chemist? Is he, he's measuring, I saw, it's frankincense, Mm -hmm. and the whole layout of his workshop looks more like a renaissance apothecary than, like, a scientific chemist, while the voiceover is like, we were living in a scientific world, um... I'm saying this, like, not as a criticism at all. It's just so much about their whole deal mm-hmm. is, like, m- mysterious. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, like, we usually give spoilers to the episode uh, right off the top, so I don't think we need to maintain the mystery mm-hmm. that, like, by the end of the episode, we know that she used to be a prostitute uh, she was abandoned and, as a baby, grew up in an orphanage, went to a life of solicitation and prostitution, and then found Faith and her husband and a better life. Mm-hmm. But, like, none of that is at all clear until the third act. Yeah, exactly. Um... This, he is the most gentle man we have ever seen. I feel like Dennis is so, like, soft-spoken and, like, just everything about him exudes gentleness. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a bit of a bias, I realize, as I'm saying it, because he's fancy. He's, you know, well-dressed in a, in, a fan- in a fancier house with a housekeeper. And so you immediately think upper class and you immediately think, like, he's a gentle gentleman. Yeah, he's... I'm not, I like, despite uh, being professionally interested, I'm still not attuned enough to uh, the minutiae of English-classed accents to have even really noticed how, what his accent sounds like. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know. I wish I could say something smart about it, but I didn't really notice whether his accent is, is obviously classed it's or different not than the cockney one but like yeah he's fancy he's gentle he's like clearly affectionate mm-hmm. and this is something that like but their affection is very reserved true like this is not like when you compare them to fred and violet that we see you know like their affection is is very beneath the surface and so does does she love him is she just grateful to him that's very unclear throughout the episode. So, but let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Yeah, the reason I'm I'm kind of wanting to uh, dance around a bit because in this section is like one of the most harrowing moments in all of Call the Midwife. I was like gritting my teeth tense, and I want to kind of, I just like don't want to jump straight to it because I, I won't have anything else to say once I start getting into it. <laughs> Well, I will say that I remembered when this episode started, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this this one. This is where she gives birth over the phone. 
but I was really surprised at how early it came in the episode. I didn't remember that it wasn't it wasn't the climax of the episode. It's the beginning of the episode. Yeah, my goodness. Yeah, this is nor this scene with. So the thing about her giving birth over the phone. Let's say a couple of things about it that are uh, interesting and not the most harrowing part to me, mm-hmm. which is like uh, she calls. Uh, they're short-staffed at Nanatis, um, so Delia has to answer the phones because there's no one else there. Phyllis mm-hmm. heads off, the car won't start, so she's on her bike, and Delia... Not, not her bike. She's on a bike, yeah, you're <laughs> right. We've never seen Phyllis on a bike before. Nope. Uh, I don't think we ever will again, no spoilers, but, yeah. <laughs> like, based on her attitude in this episode, I don't think she's getting on a bike again. Um... And uh, Delia is a nurse, but she's not a midwife. No. Uh, So she is under strict instructions, like, don't do anything but answer phones. You're not uh, to go on calls. You're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. You're answering phones because you're not a midwife. Mm -hmm. But she is a nurse, and she's in, like, her nursing uniform. So there's, like, you know, she is medically trained, but she's not a midwife. Mm -hmm. And she's answering the phones. Oh, and the other thing just in this section that I don't want to skirt past uh, without mentioning is she, Phyllis rushes out and Delia and Sister Monica Joan are seeing her off. And then Sister Monica Joan, complete non sequitur, turns to Delia and says, Our milk consumption has gone through the roof since you've arrived. Your bones must have the strength of oxen. (laughs) What? I know, right? And Delia says... I do like a milky brew. And that's the whole interaction. I know. I kept expecting later to, like, find out that someone's been drinking extra. (laughs) You okay there? It's so funny. (laughs) I kept thinking, like, maybe we'll find out that someone's been taking extra milk or stealing milk. But no, it just literally is like, Delia drinks a lot of milk. Probably because she's a lesbian, because that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, know, like, is there, sometimes I feel like... I didn't, I didn't think of that, but is there some sub- subtext? Lesbians in the audience, write to us and let us know. Or do you like a milky brew? Um, I wonder... I mean, always, we've said this before, we watch Call the Midwife through CBC Gem, and there are cut scenes. There are, yeah. And so little scenes like this might not, I'm, might not be plot relevant, but there might have been like another beat of this joke that we don't get. I looked through some notes uh, on sometimes I look up the script mm. to like cat especially the medical words um, that that I can't really trust the subtitles uh, and there was little interactions in the script that weren't in the episode right. Of course. But I didn't notice anything about the Milky Brew. But, like, <laughs> that's what I just I can't go by it. It's yeah, so it funny. Is, it is a really funny moment. And and then Delia... I mean, it speaks to Delia's strength uh, physically may mirror her strength emotionally in this moment. And she is very strong in this moment. And it does also set up, like, a little interaction between uh, Delia and Sister Monica Joan as the two who aren't trusted on clinical things. Mm -hmm. We get Sister Monica Joan saying that line, actually, that when Delia is on the phone dealing with Delia dealing, when Delia is on the phone coaching uh, Roseanne through labor, she tells Sister Monica Joan to go get uh, Patsy. Patsy, get Nurse Mount, and... 
Sister Monica Jones says, I'm not to be trusted with clinical matters. Which is like... Yeah, well, I mean, there has been some big screw-ups with Sister Monica Joan, and so she takes that seriously, that she's not supposed to do that. I love... Sometimes we have her being very petulant about it. Mm -hmm. I like this... This is like, I'm not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then she does, because it's an emergency. Like, I like Sister Monica Joan in this episode. She's hilariously... She's not as uh, wise and insightful as she was in the last episode, but she's hilarious and also not putting anyone's life in danger. Exactly. So, Sister Monica Joan. (laughs) Um, This is very... The labor is very harrowing. The baby is born and not crying. Yeah. And they're like... I can see the, like, capital letters in your notes from across the room here of, like, Pat your baby, Roseanne, rub rub your baby so she cries. Delia over the phone is like saying, you know, you have to wipe her mouth. You have to do it now. Rub your baby's back. Do it right now. And Roseanne over the phone is not doing it. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's a little bit foreshadowing that uh, Roseanne's inclination is to, like, check out. Yeah. Rather yeah. than engage. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that you don't really... I, I feel like it's the kind of thing that's well... It's subtle enough. Mm-hmm. That, like, anyone would be traumatized in this moment. So it doesn't ring as, like, this is an important character trait of hers. Until the end of the episode, when you're like, hmm, this is a character trait of hers. Yes, absolutely. Uh But, yeah, I have all in caps. Rub your baby! She's holding the baby! She's like... I seen this episode and I knew what would happen, but it still is like, I was biting my lip and clenching my head. It was so tense. Yeah. The yeah. smashing the vase and there's glass and there's she's blood on her hands and the baby is born not breathing and she's like on the phone and there's no one to help her and she's like, help me! And there's yeah. no one. Oh my yeah. goodness. It's And I mean, once again, I remembered this moment from previous from watching it years ago and in my memory this scene took like the whole episode i remember it feeling like forever and i was and then i watching it again now i'm like actually this scene is pretty short like phyllis actually makes it pretty quickly yeah it's just too late it's just a little too late the phyllis shows up at the home and patsy shows up at nanatas both too late yeah Exactly. Uh, Delia has dealt with it. I mean, like, not... To, uh, Phyllis obviously has things to do, but, mm. like, it's good that Phyllis is there and she has things to do. Yes, absolutely. But, like, everyone <laughs> is too late except Delia, who was there. And I I also like the performance. Delia's voice is so calm and confident, and mm-hmm. her face is so terrified. Yes, exactly. I think that's really well done. It's a really good, well acted. That over the phone, she sounds like she is in control and confident and knows what she's doing and is calm. Mm-hmm. And in, on her face, she's like panicking face. Yeah. I, there's a moment Phyllis comes in and apologizes and grabs the phone and says like, thank you, Nurse Busby. I have it and hangs up. And I'm like, how does she know that's Nurse Busby on the other side? I felt like that was poor writing because she... It could have easily been Patsy because Patsy was ran and gotten in that moment if if uh, if people had been faster. So, like, eh, Phyllis, you don't really know that that's Delia on the other line. She knows that she put Delia on the phone. Yes, she And did. was late. It just felt like magical 
she magically, she magically knows knew, who it is. Who, who had talked Because she's seen through. the script. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But let's, uh, we just, we have to get to the lunch where they toast <laughs> Delia and mention that she usually works in male surgery and Mona, Sister Monica Jones' line. <laughs> I've always thought, felt that the rewards of the male organ to be more rewarding than the organ itself. The results of the, the results male organ. Of the male organ. Oh, yep. It's so, I like had to pause the TV and laugh so hard with that line of like, yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Especially for a nun to make. Especially for a nun to make to do a lesbian. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, most of the people around this table agree with you. Yeah. There are a few exam- There are a few people who might not. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so should we move on to our next? Yes, go section? ahead. Okay. Doctor Turner runs a chest clinic to help men in the neighborhood, with Timothy being used as an unwilling model. Mr. Frank Phillips has lung cancer and is refusing radiotherapy treatment to improve his quality of life. Dr. Turner can't convince him. Fred cares for a bedridden Violet and offers to take on the shop, despite her protests. When he opens it, he is instantly overwhelmed by all the women's issues and enlists Barbara's help. She is assisting when Roseanne visits to pick up her purchases for the new baby. The others in the shop praise her and congratulate her, but she's made anxious by their comments. Later, Barbara and Fred find the baby sitting in the pram outside the shop. Phyllis brings Roseanne her baby and chats with her. Roseanne cries about feeling unworthy. Dr. Turner attends a post-mortem and witnesses a pair of lungs damaged by smoking. Timothy tries smoking and is caught by his parents, but he turns the tables back on them. Patrick resolves to stop smoking, and Sheila is dismayed to learn that she is also included in the stopping. <laughs> Roseanne and Dennis struggle with their feelings, with her feelings about the baby, and have still not named her. He leaves for work, and when Phyllis arrives, Roseanne has left. When Dennis returns, he says that she's likely with her mother. <laughs> but she's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we... We, before anything else, like, she's likely with her mother... There's been twice now, like, do you have a female relative? Yes. And, like, the performance is, no, I don't. No, I don't. Yeah. But before we get to uh, the dollies, Jan. Hey, Jan. Hey, Paul. Did you know smoking is bad for you? <laughs> <laughs> While I was watching this episode, our kid was in the same room. And it, like, came back from commercial to the part where Dr. Turner is looking at the guy's lungs. And our kid was like... Oh, is this the episode again? I thought this was like some kind of PSA against smoking. I don't know if she said. I don't know if she said the word PSA. I think she said commercial, like anti-smoking commercial. And I was like, "Yeah, you're not wrong. It's like, it's like, like it's necessary that we've had this doctor who like smokes yes. a lot, and we need to have him quit. But the like." Why does he need to go to, a, like, this post-mortem see these blackened lungs? <laughs> it's like, I get it. I On one hand, I totally get it. It's like any other medical discovery. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the major, one of the major plots of the season is the uh, uh, thalidomide. They didn't know it caused birth defects and they had to discover that it did. Or like last episode, they're like, oh, nuclear bomb radiation causes uh, tumors. And like... 
that is news because they don't know. Yeah. Uh, and even if you suspect, you don't know. And people didn't know that smoking caused cancer until they did. Yeah. And this is the time frame when people did. So, like, mm-hmm. it makes total sense. But it also is just, like... A little heavy-handed. A little heavy-handed. I... Timothy at the beginning, we didn't say, but, like, my little note of Timothy at the beginning reading The Lancet is... My I have my quote I've written down is, Timothy... Smoking causes cancer, doy. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. This like, Timothy's attitude, and like, all so he, uh, we have the the one two shot on Doctor Turner with the uh, the anti smoking is he mm-hmm. sees the lungs, the disgusting lungs, uh, and then he comes home to find Timothy smoking to scare his father straight. Yeah. Did you like, uh, Patrick and Sheila? Totally by Timothy's manipulation. Uh, did you suspect that he was genuine? No. No. no I, do you think we're supposed not. to as the audience? <laughs> I feel like they play it, I'm jumped to the end a bit, but I feel like they play it a bit like a revelation at the end that like, oh, you were tricking us. And I'm like, as the audience, I never suspected he no. wasn't tricking you. <laughs> and I kind of think Patrick and Sheila are a little dumb for not catching on right away that he was doing it to... Because he yells at them immediately. He didn't. He doesn't hide the fact that he's, you know, wants them to quit. Yeah. He says it right away. But, but he yeah. and they also just like remember when he was reading Freud in the first scene, yeah, and exactly. then now he's most, using reverse psychology. Reverse psychology. <laughs> um, also, while we're on Timothy, before we finish up the smoking, I just uh, quick shout out to Timothy in the chest. Uh, clinic, like, leaning over, getting smacked on the back, like, saying, I didn't agree to this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good moment. That poor kid. About smoking, though. Yeah. Uh, the other, like, Patrick comes in the middle of the night, like, uh, distraught, I'm giving it up, I'm giving it up, oh, what a wonderful moment. And then next scene is Patrick and Sheila and Patrick being like, well, if we're giving up smoking and Sheila's like, we, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> and this is where like on one hand, yeah, you should quit smoking. Smoking is very bad for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely Sheila. One cigarette is too many cigarettes. You should quit smoking. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can't decide for her. Patrick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're quitting smoking. She's a whole person in her own right. <laughs> She's not just an extension of you. It's a good point. A good it point. wrangled me a bit. But yeah, like, yeah. we, I'm not even consulted in that I'm quitting smoking and she goes along with it and fine. And oh, it's all good. Like, yes, you should quit smoking and she doesn't seem that upset about it. But I was a little upset with Patrick for like the we-ness yeah, of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, speaking of the chess clinic, this is where we meet kind of the other yes. character in this whole episode is, uh, Frank Phillips. So he has lung cancer. He's refu- and refusing the radiotherapy treatment. It's not curable because I mean, man, 60, whatever, 70 years ago, this is now cancer treatments were not great. Yeah. My goodness. I mean, what a world we have, I mean, just, we're very familiar with cancer and what a world it has changed since since then. 
lung cancer is still pretty bad. Yes, yes, absolutely. But when he's like, the radiotherapy will improve your quality of life and may improve the length of it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like uh, even lung cancer, they wouldn't, they would be like, I guess they would still say may, but like, cancer treatment will make you live longer now. Mm -hmm. It won't cure your cancer with lung cancer, most likely. That's a really bad one. Mm -hmm. But like... The, there's nothing you can do, it'll improve your quality of life and maybe give you a couple of extra days-ness of this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, um, this is something we see on this show and in life in general, this idea of men not seeking out treatment because it mm-hmm. shows weakness. Mm-hmm. And... Frank not wanting his family, not wanting his wife to see him weakened and he'd rather die younger he'd rather die sooner than for his family to experience someone who isn't at his full capacity yeah this is like a trope uh i'll have more to say about it by the end of the episode but at this point it's something we see an awful lot in fiction and in real life like i don't want them to see me like this Mm -hmm. and like okay yeah (laughs) I don't have a lot more to say about it right now. Yeah, we'll talk about it more at the end, I think. Um, Do you want to talk about Fred? Oh, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) He works in the shop. Uh, Vi can't work in the shop because she's resting. She's, I I don't know if we actually talked. No, we did. You said it in your recap, but like she's she's back spasm and she's laid out and she can't get up for like a week. So she, she can't. Work in the shop is the point. And so mm. he goes down to work in the shop. And the first thing he does is someone, a woman comes in and is like, I'm, I'm here for, I've got a fitting. And he's all playing the shopkeeper and he's like, smashing. Remind me what kind of fitting. Brazier. Yeah. And he like, glances. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the other woman, I'm here for my monthlies. Your monthly what? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, Fred. Um, which you had a wife and daughters. You should know roughly about what they mean. He figures but, out. But, like He does. He, I think the, uh, in his defense with the wife and daughters, like, your monthly what? Beat O. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, like, he, you know, uh, if he was a bachelor, it might be your monthly what? No, no, no. Yeah, that's true. Shoe dropping. But yeah, he is uncomfortable. <laughs> and he enlists poor Barbara. Is like, it's my day off. <laughs> I know. Like, Barbara. He strong arms Barbara into helping. I hope he at least pays her. Like, uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> no. My assistant, on her day off, she's like literally working yep. for someone else. Uh, I, but also the woman who's getting her her bra fitted like is horrible and she's yes. horrible till the end of the episode is like Barbara tries to measure her and there's just like you know musical montage of the shop but like she refuses to like let Barbara get around her with the measuring tape like she's holding her arms out and Barbara goes around her arms and she doesn't move she just frowns at her so like this woman is pretty terrible yeah yeah she's rough and by the end of the episode we know that she's like kind of a jerk to everyone yeah um so. but we do see rose roseanne come in picking up her she's picking up the blue for the pram i mean sorry no the pink, pink for the pram not the blue they put blue and pink on reserve uh and the neighborhood people are all like you know we heard 
they don't actually even say what uh, explicitly, but they've heard that she gave birth without without the midwife present. And so they're like, wow, you're strong and we're proud of you and you did amazing kind of thing. And, you know, motherhood, here's, you know, my daughter and my granddaughter and isn't it great? And Roseanne is just like overwhelmed by all of that. Any kindness that anyone displays to yeah. her is not something she can even accept. This is like, we talked about it last episode, that we have often the older women being like, oh, you're never going to be happy again, haha. And this interaction has like a little pinch of that, but then she, the woman turns very kind mm-hmm. and is like, you're not going to get a lot of rest, but it's all worth it and they're going to love you and you're going to do great and you, what does she say? It take, we heard about you, it takes some guts to do what you did yeah. and it's going to be worth it. You'll be standing here with your own daughter and you'll show her the way and she'll love you. Like she's so yeah, not she's being, really kind. being scary and Mrs. Dolly looks very scared by all of this mm-hmm. and is, you are I think put your finger exactly on its kindness upsets her. Mm-hmm. We have um, in so she leaves the shop, and then when Barbara goes outside, she finds the baby in the pram mm-hmm. that she's just gotten the cover for outside the shop alone. Yeah. Um, she tries to upset her daughter. She's she tries to abandon her daughter. She's very upset and unhappy for some reason we still don't know at yeah. this point. She, like, when Phyllis comes with the babe to bring the baby to her, Phyllis kind of comes assuming that she was absent-minded or, like, I don't think actually assuming, but kind of acting like she is assuming, giving yeah. her the benefit of the doubt. That, and Roseanne says things that are like, no, I chose to leave her. Mm-hmm. The ladies in the shop were so nice, I knew they'd take care of her, kind of thing. Oof. And she has that conversation with Dennis, where uh, he quotes Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And she says, I'm not real. Mm-hmm. And so we start to see, like, something about what is going on with her. We yeah. still, at this point, don't know what it is. And at that point, I was like, is this, like, some kind of arranged marriage? Is the baby actually his? Is, like, what is going on here? It's the feeling... Like, this is why kindness upsets her, not only the women in the shops, but also Dennis's, as she feels like she uh, doesn't deserve it because she feels the I'm not real is so, um, is such a, a profound line and sentiment because she feels like the person that that kindness is directed at isn't really her. Mm-hmm. And that's why kindness is upsetting, right? Absolutely. And we'll find out more in the next episode. Do you have more to say about this section? Uh, only that they haven't named the baby yet. Oh, yes. And that feels very like, if she's not real, naming the baby keeps it unreal as well. Good point, yes. Yeah, let's move on to our last recap. Fred insists that he do the ordering for Violet, but messes up and orders too late. 
Dr. Turner visits Frank and tries to continue to convince him that he should take the radiotherapy. He appeals to what his family wants for him. Roseanne goes to a friend's house near the docks, where it's clear that she once lived as a sex worker. Phyllis, Phyllis and Sheila track down that Roseanne was an orphan and has been to prison in the past. Roseanne's friend is angry with her for giving up on a good life while she had it. Violet recovers enough to go to the shop and is upset at Fred for forgetting her order. But when a customer insults him, Fred kicks her out. Violet recovers enough to go to the shop, but is upset at Fred for forgetting her order. But when a customer insults him, Violet kicks her out. Dr. Turner negotiates to get an ongoing chess clinic in Poplar, and is successful when he uses Timothy's tactics. Frank Phillips changes his mind about treatment when he reads to his children. Phyllis and sister Mary Cynthia find Roseanne and hear her life story. Phyllis shares her own story and helps helps to convince her not to abandon her baby. Rosemary, Roseanne returns home and names the baby Faith. Fred and Violet reconcile and it's sweet. Patrick and Sheila realize that Timothy's been reading psychology and he used it against them to stop the smoking. Lastly, Mature Jenny narrates about how calculations and figures can only tell a fraction of our lives. We see Frank and his wife, Dennis and Rosemary, and Fred and Violet all loving each other. Aww. Let's start by talk by wrapping up the smoking. Yes. As I squeak my chair. You won't hear the squeaking, but I'm going to leave in the talking about it. Um, so, uh, Patrick goes to see Mr. St- Stevens at the NHS. I don't know how this works. I like don't didn't even know how I would look it up. But he's I someone involved in funding, right? He's outside of his office. It says something about Poplar, so it feels like he's kind of the overseer of Patrick and other doctors in that area. And Patrick, of course, is the thorn in his side. Because, <laughs> he comes in. Yeah. I love like he comes in and Mr. Phillip and Mr. Stevens like, oh, you again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Patrick is always agitating for more because that's what makes him a good doctor that we like in our community yeah uh he uh comes in and mr steven says we gave you your chest clinic patrick says for one morning Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and he convinces him to give him uh what was it? The details. It's like for, he asks for two mornings a month, and he gives him one morning a month, which is what he wanted. Yeah, so he gives him a morning a month chest clinic run all, uh, run by Patrick, who's gonna look after your surgery while you're doing that. Uh, Patrick asks for a locum. Yeah, I had to look that up. It was like a substitute. Yeah, I was wondering if, like, it was a term I had not heard before. I was no, wondering me if you neither. looked it up. But a locum is like a sub. You would It's particularly used for doctors or clergy. Mm. So you would, like, if you're a teacher, you would call that a sub. Uh, if you're a doctor, you would call it a locum, and it's someone to fill in mm-hmm. as funded by the NHS. So. Yeah. Patrick can do the chest clinic and the locum will run his regular practice for that day uh, so that he can, can, you know, the 
chest clinic can be not just a one-time thing. And all of that, they wraps up with uh, him talking to Timothy about, like, I used your psychology technique. I asked for twice what I wanted, and they gave me half. And this is where, again, I think it's a little heavy-handed that, yeah. that uh, <laughs> Sheila and Patrick are both like, psychology? Oh, how interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Timothy is like, twirl my little mustache. Yeah. And you're like, guys, guys. come on. <laughs> the one line that I, I'm like, it's too much, there's the... That he's sitting on the floor playing with Angela and, you know, talks about quitting, spinning smoking, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, you guys are, you're, you're my world. I would do anything. You're my world. And I was like, really? A 14 year old saying you're my world? Like, it's, it's a lot. A 14 year old saying you're my world in general, let alone to his parents. Yeah. Like, (laughs) as much as I like love Timothy and he is a really good kid and like he did lose his mother which is a big deal and so like he more than you know your average kid is thinking about death of a parent still it's come on guys like Timothy is sometimes a bit a bit much (laughs) and also like you can have all my pocket money you're my world I'm like okay 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 tone it down just a little yeah that was what it was you know my pocket money like come on he's saving up for something we've seen that for the last two episodes <laughs> like my kid is you know is a really good kid and they're not ever giving me their pocket money and they're like I you know yeah I'm I am my kid's world she would never admit it to yeah, herself exactly. or me or exactly. anyone that I am exactly um I just yeah I agree that sentiment is all very touching and even the idea that he would give up his pocket money I kind of think that that is clear without him having to say it exactly (laughs) yeah it's not it's even not so much that he wouldn't that it's a bit saccharine it's that it's subtext you don't need to have him say it yep which is funny in this episode where so much of uh, Roseanne and Dennis's story. Like, we do get it spelled out right at the end, but for so much of the episode, they leave so much very mysterious and in subtext. And even at the end, a lot of it stays subtext, including, like... Yeah, I mean, by the end of the episode, it's not subtext anymore. But uh, just, like, the, the literal details of their life and his job and their interaction is very much like vague and subtextual and that's fine yeah i mean his job is he sells incense yeah by the end of the episode it's not subtext anymore but uh, but how much like they their relationship with each other like he loves her but also did he just rescue her she loves him maybe but also is she just like seeking out a better life but she also doesn't want that better life, so it's complicated, and that's good. I think that it's complicated, yeah. and we don't get all the answers because exactly. what we see is just as with this show, and the thing that we love so much about this show is it's just snapshots. Like we have our main characters, and everyone else in Poplar, it's just these snapshots and vignettes of their lives, mm-hmm. and that can sometimes get annoying because like we meet these characters and love them, and then we never see them again. But it also is. Uh, what the show is about is these vignettes of the East End of Poplar and what life was like. So I jumped to Roseanne and Dennis before I really want to, because I also want to wrap up uh, while we're talking about smoking, 
Mr. Phillips Mm -hmm. decides that he will take the radiology. And this is a small scene. Like, if I was... I mean, this is a small plot. It's probably not more than, you know, five or six minutes of the whole episode is Mr. Phillips. But it is... He sees things differently. He's, like, reading to his son and... uh, Well, and I think the key part of this is Patrick says... What would they want? Yeah. He's only been thinking about himself and not about his wife and children and what they might want and that they might want a father and a husband for a little bit longer. Yeah. Despite being sick. And that his wife doesn't even know that this was an option. Patrick mm-hmm. realizes that we realize, by the way, it's not plot relevant, but like his, their baby is like the chubbiest cheek baby <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> Okay, that's all. <laughs> Poor Paul. I get at my work to see little chubby-cheeked babies all the time because I work in the children's library. And poor Paul is like, I like chubby-cheeked babies, but they never, I never get to see them. <laughs> no. Except for in TV shows. <laughs> um, but he decides, he comes in at the end and is like, you can sign me up for radiology. I want to yeah. live longer. Yeah. Um. Do you want to talk about Fred uh, and wrap up his story, Fred and Violet, yeah. before we get to Roseanne? Yeah, just that Fred messes up. I never really, like, I don't know if there's a scene missing that we didn't see, but uh, it never is clear exactly why Fred missed the the window for ordering, if he what he got distracted by, or if it was just like, Oh, Fred, he forgot, you know, because it does seem like he's going to. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I'm, you know, can you give me another chance over the phone? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, but. If it's a cut scene, it's a cut scene. But if it's a cut scene, it doesn't, I'm sure was a good scene because often the cut scenes are, are good, but it's not necessary, I think, mm. for understanding the story. He swears up and down that he is going to do it. She says it has to be done in the morning first thing, and he's like, leave it to me. I'm your uh, you, I'm your hubby dasher. And then he's very <laughs> proud of himself for calling himself a hubby dasher. He says it twice. Yes, that's really, <laughs> which really is cute. really cute, I think. Yeah. And then he screws up. Yeah. And, um, Fred's, we're, we'll I'm going to say it now, like, Fred's story is the same as Rosemary's story. Mm, yeah. Uh, that he wants to do better, he wants to be a different person, he wants to be a haberdasher, he dresses sharp, and he's, like, a shopkeeper, and then he is, uh, decides... Uh, Rose, Roseanne doesn't really make a mistake that leads to this, and Fred does, but it still is the same, like, he sees himself suddenly differently. Mm-hmm. He's not a haberdasher. He's just the chump who let her down. Yeah. And that line specifically is like, exactly, I'm not real. Mm-hmm. Right? And he's in the shop. It, the stakes are less. Mm-hmm. But it's the same story. Mm-hmm. He's His past defines his future. He wants to be a better person for the people that he loves. And then he is uh, kind of crushed by the impossibility of that, that he is who he is, and he's not good enough for her or his life or the things that he needs. Like, 
I find it so uh, compelling the way these two stories are very different people in very different circumstances, mm-hmm. but emotionally they're in the same place. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and Violet, much like every single one of us, you can insult the people you love, but when a stranger or someone who doesn't know them very well does, the wrath is going to come down on them. Yeah. So how dare this woman say bad things about Fred to Violet? She says, Mr. Buckle, he promises you the moon and you end up on Crisp Street. What? What does that mean? Crisp Street, I looked it up after seeing this because I was like, is this like some kind of metaphor or a real thing? Crisp Street is a literal street in Poplar. Uh, there's a market on it uh, that still exists, actually. I found some old pictures of from kind of around this time online of Crisp Street, which was kind of cool. It just seems like he promises you the same neighborhood you're already in. Or he promises you more. You yeah. end up in the same yeah, neighborhood you are. You end up where yeah. you already were. And I love Violet's like, well, I happen to like Crisp Street. I like Violet. He's mad at him, as she should be. Mm-hmm. But then she's also defensive of him, and she says, you may be a chump, but you're my chump. Yeah, exactly. They, before they got married, she had this moment of doubt in their relationship that she thought he was just marrying her to be a golden parachute or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's worked hard for her life and her shop, and it matters to her, and she doesn't want him to be a sponge. And then here, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a shift exactly. I think it's a development. I don't care about the shop. It's what I had when I didn't have anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, that still her. But then she also is like, but don't ever go into my shop again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> because they're still themselves. It's my shop. I run it. Uh, but I, but. I have you and we have each other and you're my chump yeah. and I like Crisp Street and it's all very sweet mm-hmm. and he it is. is a screw up. Yeah. <laughs> he did screw up and like that's okay because she loves him anyway. <laughs> you relate to this one? <laughs> I relate. Somehow for some reason I relate to the guy who screws up and people love him anyway. Uh Especially screws up through forgetfulness and incompetence. (laughs) (laughs) Promises things he can't actually do, and then when he doesn't pull it off, is like, (laughs) like, like for example, saying, "Well, I promise we'll record Call the Midwife this week, or this week, or this week," and then suddenly it's six months later. Sorry, guys. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I put in just the like. I put a reminder on my phone to vacuum. I spilled some dirt and was in the middle of doing other things. And I was like, set a reminder for the evening. Did you ever vacuum that up? And then when the reminder came, I was like, shut up. (laughs) I did vacuum it up. That's true. You eventually did. Um, Okay, let's get to Roseanne. Let's get to Roseanne because it is the same. I said it's the same story. We saw in the last episode, I mean, not the last episode, in the last section last recap, that whole speech about I'm not real. About I'm not real, which is mirrored in uh, the kinds of things that Fred says here. Mm -hmm. And in this section, we see the whole picture. Yeah. At last. Yeah, she goes to her friend's house. She 
it's clear that she was a sex worker in the past and her friend still is and uh and of course her friend is angry with her like you can't get, you got a golden ticket out of here how dare you like come back and be like i'm not worthy of that like you have time to think about such things in your fancy palace you know yeah i didn't write down the exact line but yeah. like what a life you must be leaving if you have time to think about whether you deserve it mm-hmm. like your worries are inconsequential yeah. to me and like and yet they are real worries. Yeah. Like, I like that we get that perspective and also you don't understand, so. Yeah. I think her kind of redemption or her her changing her mind here comes twofold. One, from her friend being like, do you think I would be in this life if I didn't absolutely have to be? Why would you come back here kind of thing? And then, and like, I want what, I want things better for my daughter. Don't you want things better for your own kid? And then, of course, Phyllis coming and once again sharing her past and sharing this life that, that we keep getting little glimpses of through Phyllis, of poverty, of she was born out of wedlock and so her mother was rejected. She and, said, oh. yeah, her parents, my mother's parents threw her out. Mm-hmm. We knew her mother was a single mother uh, before, and we made assumptions about what that meant that turned out to mostly be true. Mm-hmm. Um, the, like, her mother's parents threw her out. She did anything she could to feed me. She doesn't say what that means, but, like, uh, anything she could, whether yeah, that's sex anything. work or, or just, like... Uh, working in shops and being insulted. It's like things she wasn't happy with mm-hmm. and proud of. Doesn't matter what exactly it was. Yeah. She did things she wasn't happy with and proud of to try to get Phyllis something better, and it worked. Yeah. Phyllis did get something better. Mm-hmm. I didn't see how that broke her, she said. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, the, like, I love Phyllis's story here. Yeah. Hearing a bit more of Phyllis's perspective, and not just hearing it, like, it is really great uh, to have this character be Phyllis. There's something, I think, very um, moving and effective in this show that they remember in a way that a lot of shows don't, and a lot of people in real life don't. They remember that, like... Old people still had childhoods, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. They do that with Sister Monica. Joan is still thinks about her mother all the time. Mm-hmm. And Phyllis, like, she is still the product of her childhood. And yep. so much in fiction, we treat, peop- like, older people like they were born old. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, I feel like this is so much more moving and effective coming from Phyllis than if we had, if the show had imagined, you know, like, whatever, a Barbara character. Uh, because Phyllis is so... Like, I've made a whole life. I'm on... Mm-hmm. I can look back and it still matters to me, but also I can uh, tell you about... I'm not on my way out of this. I, like... 
I lived a life, you know, and continue mm-hmm. to, like, not like her life's over. Yeah. But, like, I, I love her perspective and the show for putting that perspective on her instead of a younger character. Yeah. You know? And she goes back home and names the baby Faith, which is sweet, because that's what brought her and her husband together. Yeah. We and talked, we didn't talk, we, I kind of talked around, but I want to just dwell for a moment on, much like the I'm not real, what Roseanne says to her friend and what she says to herself and what she says to Phyllis is all about, like, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. I need to be good enough for this life, but I'm not I, uh, it's the same as I'm the chump who let you down. Mm-hmm. And it's the same as, like, when she tells this, in that conversation with Phyllis, when she tells her story of, like, I was in the orphanage and no one wanted me. I was abandoned and not wanted and not loved and not chosen. And, uh, I never made good choices. Mm-hmm. And how can I show my, uh, daughter the right path when I never took it and what Phyllis shows her what Phyllis tells her that I think the perspective that Phyllis helps her see we don't choose to be unloved mm-hmm. by those who don't love us you didn't choose to be abandoned but you did choose to go to church and to find your husband and to love him and the good choice like the you did make good choices yeah uh I just didn't want to go past... I know you started moving on, and uh, I just didn't want to go past yes. that we don't choose to be unloved by those who don't love yes, us. Yes, like those who should love us. I wrote that down, too, and it's beautiful. Oh, it's a beautiful line. Don't abandon... Your little girl wants you. Don't abandon her because you were abandoned. Mm-hmm. That is the key point in this. Don't abandon your kid because you were abandoned. And you know what it's like. And we see this... Uh, I'm not good enough theme. Roseanne is the strongest, most profound example of it, but we see it in a lighter but still meaningful way in Fred, and we also see it in uh, Mr. Phillips. Mm -hmm. Like, that's at the root of Mr. Phillips also. Yeah. He's just a little blip of a story, but, like, I'm not good enough to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I need to be strong and handsome. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, like I worked in a club and there were all these movie stars and she said I was a movie star and never looked at them and that's what I want and I'm going to die rather than be less than that yeah. because I'm not good enough to be loved on any other terms. Yeah. I'm not real. I'm not good enough. I'm afraid of being unloved if I show weakness or vulnerability, which is who I think I really am. Mm -hmm. All three of these stories are the same story, really, on different scales and in different contexts. And I think it's very, very... Like, we often bring the stories together, sometimes more effectively and sometimes less. And I feel like these three stories being different facets of the same emotional state Mm -hmm. is, like, very effective to me. And speaking of that, of bringing them all together, um, what does the mature Jenny narration at the beginning and the end have anything to do with this episode? I really struggled to see, because it was all about, like, measure, in our yeah. modern world, we weigh and measure, but the but the uh, real story is more than that. And I was like, that's kind of a nice sentiment, but I really am not seeing it quite connect to the episode. 
I think it's a bit of a stretch to connect it, my way of connecting it, but I think it, I agree it's not the strongest, is that it is by the uh, kind of weights and measures perspective that none of these people are good enough. Mm, yes, that's true. So okay. Fred does screw up and does mess up in the shop and the shop I'm sure doesn't bring in the money that it would have and he's not a very good shopkeeper and good intentions don't make him effective mm. and that mean woman is right. You can yeah. have good intentions and want all the best but he can't actually run a shop. Yeah. And Roseanne... Uh, can move forward, uh, but her past still exists. And mm -hmm. she did do things that she's ashamed of that don't disappear. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, Mr. Phillips is going to be weak and decrepit and uh, gross. <laughs> because that's what happens when you are sick. And he's not going to be strong and handsome. And if you're measuring things in this modern world of measuring things... All of their assessment of themselves as not good enough is correct. Hmm. But they're all also profoundly wrong. Okay. That's, I like, okay. <laughs> you did it, Paul, you did it. I was doubtful, but you did it. <laughs> you were going to talk about, I interrupted you, and I want to give, I want you to say what you were going to say about calling the baby Faith. Oh, I don't know. That... <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the baby, the, the, she names the baby Faith because that's where she found her husband. That's where she is moving forward to. Yeah. That is a beautiful sentiment. I love mo the, like, the way she puts it. I'm going to name him Faith. I'm going to name her Faith after you. Yeah. When, like, his name is Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm naming her after you. But Denise. I really like it. Yeah. I really like I name her Faith after you mm -hmm. when his name is Dennis. Yeah. And she explains a little, but not very much. And I think this is another example where it would be kind of be better if she didn't explain at all. Yeah. I'm going to name her Faith after you. Mm -hmm. The end. So what is your favorite part of this episode? Oh. Uh, I can't choose between the funny and the profound mm -hmm. this episode. I'm going to go, I'm going to guess that your profound one's going to be the same as mine. So I'm going to go with funny. My favorite part is the milky brew. That like, <laughs> I died laughing. I don't even, can't even really explain why. It's just so uh, uh, random and funny. And like both of the performances on those two lines are so good. Like we, you, your bones must have the strength of an ox. Do you like a milky brew? <laughs> it was just so, so funny. What was your favorite part of this episode? Um, I mean, I also like the funny bit about uh, Sister Monica Jones saying that the <laughs> results of the male organ are more rewarding. I can't even say it. The results of the male organ are more rewarding than the organ itself. It was so funny. Um... I mean, the profound parts were the profound parts, and I... But I also really like Timothy sticking it to his parents by <laughs> being like, what are you going to do, light it for me? Like, oh, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Like, oh, Dad, tell me why I shouldn't smoke. Huh? Huh? Yeah. Huh? Huh? Yes. Huh? I love it. Love it so much. So um, you don't have to say the profound parts just because I no, it's <laughs> put fine. them on you. But, uh, say those parts. Those are those are some of my favorite parts of the episode in a in an episode that has some very also very profound parts. Um, 
if you'd like to talk to us about the profound and not profound and what you <laughs> found funny in these episodes, uh, you can get in contact with us. How would they do that, Paul? You can email us, poplar at clockworksacademy.com. You can find us on Twitter, while Twitter still exists, uh, Poplar Opinion. Poplar Opinion, at Poplar Opinion. Um, we have a Discord. There will be a link in the show notes, and you can come and talk about Call the Midwife or Poplar Opinion, or uh, just answer the question of the day. Uh, and we'd be happy to see you there. And uh, we also, if you like this show and would like us to keep making it and would like to us to be very happy, you can support this show and everything we do at uh, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. That'll support this show and also other things that Clockworks Academy does. And if you want to know what Clockworks Academy does, you can find that at clockworksacademy.com. Thank you very much for joining us this week. I've been Paul Moffat. And I've been Jan Moffat. And that's just my poplar opinion. Thank you.